Welcome to the latest edition of the Progress with Unity podcast and what a podcast it promises to be. Joining the studio tonight, I've got the usual gang of Barry, Paul and Adam, and I'm joined by two very special guests. One making a return, Lisa and Nandi, how are you? I am much better than last time we were on. Well, yes, yeah, and as are we, I think. It's, uh, it's getting better and better. And also we're joined by another very special guest, uh, the, the new man of Twitter, the star of Twitter at the minute, <laughs> Jonathan Tobin. Jonathan, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, I think we'll probably refer to you as Doc, because um, after reading some of your anecdotes on um, Twitter, uh, the passport office one was uh, is my favourite, that uh, the player rang you and just said, what, what's your name, Doc? We'll, we'll go with that. But first and foremost, let's, let's jump in to the takeover news that broke yesterday, Monday, that the Bahraini businessman Abdul Rahman Al-Jamzi Talal Al-Hamad in as chairman, Mal Brannigan, Oliver Gottman and Tom Markham are all but signed sealed delivered to take over the Latics. Lisa, I'll come to you first and just let us know how we've got to here and what, what are your thoughts on this group coming in? Well, I mean, many of the fans will know because I know people have been following it really closely that this group were originally interested way back last summer um, and then that sort of all seemed to go off the boil and that was the point at which we took that sort of wrong turn down at what turned out to be a dead end with the Spanish consortium and that wasted three months of just absolute anguish and misery um, and finally then got to a point where the administrators said they would open it back up um, the EFL were pretty clear with them that that was the only real course of action. And then a number of new entrants started coming onto the scene. There'd been people who'd been interested all the way through, um, who remained interested and were still interested. Some of them lost interest. Some of them got frustrated. Some of them, to be honest, the story they told me is that they got frustrated with the administrators and just couldn't couldn't deal with it anymore and so walked away. Um, and some of them couldn't raise the money either. And I don't think you know, I think there were some that knew they didn't have the money, to be honest, but it was still sort of going on for some time. So it's quite a it was quite a strange sort of couple of months where there were just lots and lots of bidders floating around, but no actual bid on the table. Um, and then and then um, uh, this bid, Mr. Al Jasmi, um, uh, resurfaced. And the administrators were very, very keen on it. And I, I, I was having conversations with them. Uh, so with the supporters club, the council and others, and they, it looked like there was a realistic prospect because he clearly had the money, which was the, the first thing. But there was also, there seemed to be a much sort of renewed drive to try and get a, a bid through. The administrators seemed to be serious. The, 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 the bidders seemed to be serious this time. Um, and that's when I started talking to the EFL and said, look, if you're going to be looking at this, you know, doing pre-checks, which they very kindly agreed to do on lots of different candidates so we didn't have any more delays. Can you look at where, what is the money behind this bid? What is the intention behind it? Who are the individuals? I mean, obviously we've been stung before by having new owners come in who we didn't know, who didn't have pre-existing ties to the club based overseas. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's issues in Bahrain about um, human rights and 
corruption, not in any sense casting aspersions on Mr Al Jasmi, but these are all things that I really wanted the EFL to look at early because if there were flags that were raised, we needed to know about it and we needed to move on because there were other bidders around but they and to their credit I can't praise them enough I know I was very rude about the EFL at the beginning of this process and um you know to to them to their faces as well as about them but they they have been superb actually at working with us really closely all the way through and really looking out for the interests of the club at times it felt like they were the only people on the inside of the process who really were and um they they did really really extensive and thorough checks and investigations and they kept me and the supporters club involved all the way through i was getting phone calls evenings weekends We've, we've looked into this, we found this, this is what we think, this is what we're going to look at next. And basically got to the point where uh, they were pretty happy. Uh, the board had discussed it and were pretty happy. And um, so the administrators rang up uh, the chair of the supporters club and said, right, we're, go we're going ahead. And so that's the point at which I had a conversation with the incoming chief exec. And uh, I have to say, I liked him a lot. Um, I don't know him and, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in football, um, although I feel like one now after the last nine months. But um, he, he was, you know, the, all of them involved in this were at great pains to get to know me, to get to know the council, to, most of all, to get to know the fans. They, they found it very difficult having to sort of withhold information from the fans until the deal had been given the green light and they they really they've they've reached out to Wigan Warriors they're very keen to be involved in the town and all of that says to me that this is very different from where we were before with Stanley Choi where we didn't even know we didn't even know who the owners were for quite some time we'd never met them um, the new chairman is is going to come over as soon as he can he wants to meet with me and with the fans so it's a it's you know at the moment i you know, I haven't met the new owner, uh, Mr. Al Jasmi. I haven't met the new chairman, but at the moment, this is about as positive an outcome as I could ever have imagined. Certainly, there are moments over the last nine months where I never thought we'd get here. So, you know, I think after the hell that we've all been through, I think we should bank this and just be really, really positive and really optimistic this week. I think we've earned it. We deserve a bit of time off worrying about Wigan Athletic and, you know, get on to looking at what's happening on the pitch rather than off it. Have they spoken to you about what they plan to do with regards to you know, any investment into the squad or into the stadium? Yeah, they're, they're very keen on the academy. Um, made very, very positive noises about that. I mean, you'd be mad not to be. You know, the, the academies are a huge asset to Wigan Athletic. Um, so, yeah, they want to focus very much on sort of building the first team back up, on protecting the academy. They talk to me about the community trust. They're, you know, they're well aware of the really good work that it does in the towns. So they wanted, to, they wanted me to know that that was a priority for them. Um, I think there'll probably be some discussions with the Warriors that there were going to be whoever took over the, the the club about the stadium, but they're very keen to have a positive relationship with Warriors. Um, and it makes sense for, for Wigan Athletic that because in the end, the only way that that stadium really works is if you've got two teams in it. Um, so that that's good news. They understand that. I think one of the most positive things for me is that 
I cannot tell you the number of people. I mean, Barry, I know you've spoken to some of them over the last year who ring up and they say things like, you know, we want to set up a cricket academy. We want to set up a casino. We're going to build a wing of the ho- new wing of the hospital. And I know you know you feel this as well, because I've sort of said it to them. But, you know, I just said to them all, we just want you to run a football club well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, just focus on the one thing that we actually need, which is to buy the football club and run it well. Um, and so what, what's mo- mostly relieving is that there's none of that from them. They just they want to focus on on Wigan Athletic. And that's really, really positive. I mean, you know, I said to Mal, the incoming um, chief exec, the best thing from my point of view that you could do for this town is just to make sure we have a really good football club. And that's, I think that's where he's coming from as well. Sorry, Simon. I just think the uh, statement from the incoming chairman where he talks about it's going to be actions, not words. And I thought that was very important. So they're going to prove themselves through the actions rather than talking a big game, which, you know, previous bidders have spoken about the big game, haven't they? And it was like pie in the sky stuff. This is what we want. We, we, we want the action, not the not the chat. Yeah. Doc, I just want to bring you in, obviously, because you, you've been in and around the squad quite a lot because games are thick and fast at the moment. What's the reaction been with, with the uh, current playing staff um, and obviously management? Because it's, it, it's been a long time coming. A lot of the players haven't been there since the beginning. But, uh, yeah, how what's, what's the mood been like now? So if you sort of take me through the the journey, there was a period from when we went into administration and after we got relegated through to January, where I think the entire staff and the players were wounded. We were all hurt so badly by what had happened. And we were trying desperately to be positive, trying desperately to get the kids on the pitch and be performing. But we were wounded and we were struggling. And we got to the end of the transfer window in January and with a new influx of players and the ones that had been here from previous having left, we suddenly came to a place where all of us just sort of got on board and we kind of relaxed about what had happened and just started looking to what we needed to do day to day. And I think you can see that in the unity of the squad since January and also the results have also mirrored this where it's almost like those wounds healed after that transfer window and we could all start looking to getting things right you know on the pitch it's hard to it's hard to explain just how difficult all of those things have been and I know I've been noisy on Twitter so I've kind of had a getting a bit of attention from that but it's the guys that you don't hear about that deserve the credit because they're they're doing two or three jobs each because you know my medical department's running with half the staff Liam's doing everything on his own Um, I don't care how many times I hear the credit going to Liam it's not enough he's carried this club on his shoulders for the last nine months pretty much single-handedly him and Gregor Um, and the other staff are helping as well but he's just been unbelievable and so to finally get to this point where we can get some really positive news you know we're already behind because other clubs are already planning their pre-seasons for next season and all of this functioning of a club that would normally happen that hasn't happened can now we can now start looking forward you know hopefully we'll be in league one if we're in league two we're in league two and we will but at least we've got a functioning club and start going forward so it's a massive it's a massive lift I did worry yesterday in the game about whether the news would be that positive effect that everyone thought it might be it, it was almost too much on Monday with that news everyone was the mood in the camp was kind of you know, we're talking about takeovers and everything else. And I just wonder if that did affect our performance slightly. It was just the emotion of having come through that nine months and finally feeling like you're getting to the finish line. I know uh, Barry and Paul discussed about the, the timing of the announcement and how it may may impact on the squad. And obviously we're coming to talk about uh, Wimbledon 
a little bit later. But like you say, it must be a massive now relief that plans can now start to be put in place. And first fight's obviously staying in the division and then from there on in. And I think we've got the calibre of players to do it now. You, you can see that seven points out of the last you know, nine available is a great return. It's positive that it's... It's coming to fruition. Like you said, Liam, I've, we've spoken to you. you you're always saying that it's, there's, there's other people that deserve, that deserve the credit, you know, when we see you on Twitter. And it's, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in that, uh, that dressing room in those buildings for those last nine months because of how difficult it must have been for you guys. I've, I've worked with, I think, I think Liam's my 16th gaffer I've worked with in my career now. And of those 16, he's the one I would choose to be leading us through. Like every manager, like every electrician or every teacher brings a different kind of energy to the job they do and Liam has this kind this kind of really calm way about him um, he carries an awful lot of burden he doesn't ask other people to do an awful lot um, he leads by example and of all the managers that I've worked with he's the one person I'd want in this place having gone through everything we've gone through to, to, to kind of carry us through and I think we're going to have been very very lucky to have him at the helm during that time. Yeah, no, that's that's. I think that's echoed. Uh, I think through supporters, maybe we don't appreciate it enough, but I think what's been seen, especially on social media, is the outpour of thank yous that have been given, and one massive amount of thank yous that have been directed has been towards the supporters club. And we're luckily joined by Jason Taylor, fresh from his tea. Um, Jason, uh, we've, we've obviously spoken to Lisa uh, about how we got to where we are today. But from a supporters club kind of point of view, firstly, how, how are you guys feeling and what's the future looking like? Well, first of all, it's just uh, a massive relief. You know, it's, it's like a weight's been lifted off his shoulders. I mean, there's so many people who've been, uh, you know, pulling together behind the scenes, some in front of the scenes, you know, and Lisa's one of them who's been uh, working behind the, the pressure and stress that, uh, you know, we've all been under has been immense. And, you know, the news that we got on, well, we actually got it Monday afternoon, but uh, apparently the lawyers were uh, picking through it, hence why you only got it on the night. But <laughs> yeah, we, we just, it was like a sigh of relief. And it was like, oh, the future, if um, if they stick to what they're saying, it means they, uh, they are going to talk with uh, not just sports club, but all fans, fans groups, and see what they want as a, as a football club going forward. I can't see why they won't do that. You know, they'll, they'll listen to us when they do anything about it. It's a totally different thing. But if they do what they say, then I think the future could be very bright for us. I mean, you know, I'm SLO as well. So I've had uh, a lot of insights into how other football clubs are run. So I know how they run all the family excellence schemes. I know how they run um, the daytime schemes, how they get fans to the ground uh, rather than going to the pub. Uh, you know, and all those sort of things will be helpful, you know, to build this club and rebuild the future for us. No, it's 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 definitely uh, promising. I know we uh, we were on BBC, weren't we? And we managed to have a chat, and that raw emotion the day after was, you know, it's still there now. And I think Adam, uh, I'm going to bring Adam in now. He's got a, a couple of questions for for our guests. Just wanted to uh, come to you first, uh, Jason, and just um, obviously you said it's a huge relief, which clearly is to, uh, to to all of us. Moving forward, can you see, I know you've just alluded to some of it, can you see any kind of new initiatives really, you know, because I think in the past maybe we've kind of taken the supporters club for granted in a way really, and we've, we've, we've essentially seen how important it is. Can you see any new initiatives really of how the you know, the supporters club and the, obviously the club itself can work together and push forward and get more of a fan's voice, really. Uh, it's it's going to sound like I'm going to get at the old uh, 
management of the club. But if I pan back to 1999 when we were at Springfield Park and just leaving and we had our own supporters club with their own, our own bar and our own facilities and our own everything. And we got to the new stadium and we had four years of being in the stadium. And then the second we got in the Premier League, the sports club would turfed off over to the uh, sports hall. I think that said everything about what the club thought of the sports club back then. Things have got better over the years to the point where obviously we came back into the stage, you know, whether that was a monetary thing because obviously they weren't using every room by then, but, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, they wanted the sports club back in, then that's fine. But th- there's plenty of uh, things that the sports club have been to the club with over the years to try and uh, get involved. You know, the sports club always did the players' dinner at the end of the season. They always did the uh, trophies at the end of the season. They were always involved with the first team, but all that was taken away from them. I think going forward, maybe get a bit of that back for the sports club. At least then everybody will know they exist. I think it got to a point where the only people who knew they were supposed to exist were the people who kept on renewing the memberships every single year. And I know that sounds like I can't be really, really, you know, bad on the uh, on the old crew, but you know, facts are facts, aren't they? The past is the past, though. That's the you have that right. We're going to look look forwards on that. So I, I agree with you, uh, Lisa. Just for you, just a more sort of general point. Obviously. it's fantastic for, for Wigan Athletic moving forward. Do you think still there'll be this push though? Because I, I think there's still got to be concerns in general about sort of the financing of football and the regulation of football. We're, we're through it, but through the skin of our teeth, I think in the end, because there were times when we didn't think we would get there. So I'm just wondering whether there's still an appetite within Parliament uh, and the government in particular to push forward on a regulation of football finance because nothing happened really after the Berry report when Berry went out of business. Any news really from Parliament as to what's happening? So actually, I'm already on the case. So we said at the beginning, didn't we, that um, the absolute overwhelming priority had to be to just secure the club's long-term future, and that that was what we were going to throw every bit of energy we had in to do in and I think we have to be fair we're all exhausted but we've done it and we did what we said we would do which was to get the club through this but then the next bit was always going to be to sort this out because I just think if this can happen to Wigan Athletic it can happen to anybody and I want to make sure that nobody ever has to go through what we've just been through ever again when you look at Berry, when you look at Bolton and what they went through you know we should we shouldn't be here um and th- So my intention is that I'm going to tell this story in a lot more detail um, in Parliament. Um, I can speak very openly in Parliament about this because I have parliamentary privilege. So I'm protected from any potential legal repercussions, which is helpful because uh, there's been a lot of uh, litigation flying around over the last few months, which I will talk about in Parliament a bit more. Um, but, you know, there are some people who've let us down really, really badly. Obviously, the previous owners let us down really badly. We were let down um, as well by the administrators when they took us down that three month diversion um, with, um, you know, a bid that it became very apparent was going absolutely nowhere. We were watching good players being sold. We were watching assets being stripped. And that attrition was just awful. We, we were let down by the government. I can't tell you the number of times I asked the sports minister. Um, I'd ring him up on his mobile and say, we need help. You know, in the middle of a pandemic, we didn't have any income coming in as well. That made things a lot, lot worse. You know, it gets to the point where you can't even pay for the lights for the games to get through the season and you're asking supporters to stump up the money. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And um, 
we just didn't get the help that we needed. So loads of people that really did let us down, but there were also loads of people, I just couldn't believe it, who stepped up and stepped forwards. And I want to tell that story as well, um, because, you know, as well as as well as well the, the, the people that have been mentioned, people like Jonathan Jackson, honestly, I cannot speak more highly of him. He has just been there, you know, he's made redundant in the middle of all of this, and he's been there working every single day. There were moments during this process where, if he hadn't been involved, I don't think we would have a club anymore. He just, he held people together with both hands. At one point, he was the only person that everybody in the process trusted and would speak to. So he was the only reason there was still a dialogue going on. Emerson Boyce, if I ever get my way, I'm giving that man a knighthood. Um, but also, you know, you guys and the way that you've helped to get, and Jay, and the way that you've helped to get information out to the fan observer have been incredible the times that they've they've written things that have helped to move stuff along or they've kept things back sometimes because they knew it wouldn't be helpful to the club. There are a couple of national journalists as well, Mike Keegan and David Conn, who at various points had rung up, not for any gain for themselves or for their papers, but just to say, I think you might want to look at this or I think you, you might have a problem here and given us tip-offs that proved to be absolutely invaluable. Like these are people who just, I've never seen that side of football before. And it is like, you know, we might have come across some of the worst of people, but we've the, some of the best of people that I've ever worked with or met involved. And those are the people that have to drive the future of the game. So I saw Tracy Crouch yesterday. She is the person that the government has been talking about to do this fan-led review into football. I, I rate her, we're in different political parties, but I do rate her. I think she she understands football and she's independent, fiercely independent. She will stand up for the fans um, to the government and make sure that things get done. So I saw her yesterday. I'm hopeful that this isn't going to be delayed any further. Um, but part of the reason for me talking about what has happened to us, and particularly because the EFL have been doing this investigation into what happened that led to us going into administration in the first place, part of the reason for telling that story is to make sure that we, we ramp up that pressure to get these changes that we so badly need. And I'm just, I'm so determined that we're gonna do it. I, pro I made two promises at the start of this process. One was that we would have a club at the end of this and we would we would come through this. And the other was that we would change football for good. So 50% job done. And now we're on to the next bit. Yeah, that's really good to hear because obviously there's been a lot of clubs who've been very supportive of us through the process as well. Obviously, uh, Ashley at Portsmouth uh, for the Football Supporters Association and other clubs as well who've lent us the support, you know, with, uh, you know, ideas and things like that. Usually football, there's always the odd idiot, but generally speaking, football does come together in these uh, circumstances. We do have a good empathy for other clubs as well. Uh, thanks, Lisa. Uh, just a couple for you, uh, Jonathan. First question is dealing with the young players. Uh, and obviously this is a role you work, like you said before, working with the physios. Is it the case that really, you know, throughout the sort of the last few months that the bodies of the players were not necessarily up to the the rigours really of playing week in, week out? And it was almost like it was so difficult for them because we just seemed to be, oh, okay, so do you think it was the kind of the pressure of the amount of games put on the young players? Or do you think we were just generally unlucky with some of the injuries that we suffered? Well, I think, I think there were 
sort of two parts. The first is the the things that were affecting all of the football clubs. And this is true for us, for every club in the in the league, in that there wasn't really a pre-season, that we'd come off the back of, um, in, into a very short spell. We'd obviously had the championship season as well. So there's a lot of fatigue and tiredness. Um, no one had had a break. We hadn't really had a chance. And also we're playing kids who are used to playing an under 23s level. And a lot of them were then being put into um, a men's game. So then you take into administration in the count where they make us run with a reduced squad. So we've got already got a smaller number. And because of the game started getting cancelled because of coronavirus. So we suddenly went into this Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday pattern. And I think it was just an absolute perfect storm of problems um, that all hit us, in, especially in sort of that November, December period, where it was just, it was absolute carnage. Um, you know, people were trying to isolate for 10 days, and then, of course, our squad was being further reduced because of that. And there were times when we couldn't even fill our bench. Now, it was tough at every club, and I don't think the AFL have covered themselves in glory because I think all they've been doing is pushing through trying to finish this season and they haven't taken player welfare into account and they certainly weren't particularly helpful when we spoke to them about trying to help us given our very special circumstances around this um but also we you know we did manage to get a team on and we did get some performances and we did pick up some points and we did hold things together and like i said the whole club was so wounded in that period up to january um we were just reeling it was just just all reeling um and then obviously the transfer window happened and all of a sudden, as I said, from January onwards, we've picked up the mood in the camps better. We feel like we're in control of things now. Um, you know, everyone's keen to be here and to stay here and, and wants, you know, and, and is all sort of part of a group trying to move forward as a whole rather than these little bits all stuck together and not really fitting together at all, which was pre-Christmas. Final question for me, Doc. Uh, it's more of a general question why I'm here. This season, big issue in the news medically has obviously been sort of concussion and return to play. Uh, just thought your, your, just your views really on where we're at at the moment in football in terms of uh, sort of addressing head injuries on the pitch. Would you ever advocate having an independent medical observer or do you think that it's ultimately the responsibility of the club's medical team to to deal with things like that. Yeah, so firstly, I think this is a ticking time bomb, to be perfectly honest. I think there's going to be an awful lot of research that gets done into concussion, both in football and in rugby, and I think the results are going to probably alter the game in some fundamental ways, especially in terms of training. In terms of, again, it's a resource issue. So the Premier League, having an independent doctor's, you know, it, it, it is pocket change to those guys. When you're talking about a League Two club, or a League One club, then having an independent advisor on site isn't really practical. So what I think needs to happen is that the EFL and the football clubs need to come together and they need to find a system that frees up the doctor that is there from um, the pressures that can be applied during the game. And I don't necessarily mean that these are managers shouting at you to keep someone on the pitch, but there are, you know, I desperately want us to stay up. Of all the seasons I've worked in football, this one I care about a hundred times more than any other season I've been involved in. And so there's a pressure from myself on myself to try and keep important players on the pitch. And so I think we just need to find ways of trying to take all of those pressures off so you can be as independent as you can to make those decisions. Now, whether that's talking about having concussion substitutes where you can have a temporary substitute while you make a 10 minute assessment. So all of these things, I think, are steps in the right direction. But like VAR and everything else, there are going to be teething problems and they're going to need to be worked through and slowly but surely the system will get better.
Quick question, Lisa, with regards to the investigations into the previous owners and how we got where we are. Yeah. Is there anything we can be told about that or do we just have to be patient and wait and have faith that the investigations are ongoing? My understanding is there isn't a lot of new information at the moment. And I had a quick chat with the EFL about that a few days ago. Um, and there isn't there are there are there are a number of things that are still unexplained. You'll all have seen the interview with Stanley Choi recently, and I think Barry's done quite a good demolition job on some of that. But there are a number of things that are still unexplained that we're still trying to get to the bottom of. I've got, I've, I mean, I make myself sound like a, an amateur sleuth. I suppose I am really um, amateur, very much being the word. But I've had feelers out, you know, people on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Uh, and uh, people who are involved in football betting and gambling um, who've been asking around and trying to trying to get to the bottom of some of this. I think we'll get there, but we're, not, we're nowhere near there yet, actually. There's, there's still quite a few things that are really unexplained about that. And it's, it's two things for me, really. One is that I think the fans deserve to know what happened. And I think all football fans deserve to know what happened so that we can learn the lessons. But actually, there's also the other side of it is that the fact that we're here now and we still don't know some of those things tells you that we've got a system that allows those who want to deliberately keep these details out of the public domain, you know, a system that allows them just to run rings around the official system. And that in itself tells you quite a lot of what you need to know about what needs to change. So regardless of, you know, I don't know how much we'll end up knowing. I don't know if we'll ever know the full truth. I think we can probably get quite close to it. Um, I want to see people held accountable for what's happened. But most of all, what I want is for things to change so that it doesn't happen again. And I, I'm, I'm more confident than I was several months ago that we'll get there. Um, so no, no in, the, in a nutshell, there isn't a huge amount more to say at the moment, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very keen that there will be. I know you've got to get away, Lisa, and we thank you very much for your time this evening. And But more, more than that, we thank you so much for all the hard work you've done over the past nine months and obviously you're still continuing to do so. I know you said we once have got here without Jonathan. I, I don't believe we would have got here without yourself as well and the supporters club, of course. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for everything that you've done for Wigan Athletic. Absolutely brilliant. It's really, really lovely of you. But, um, you know, I was reflecting the other day that, you know, you and I went on um, Times Radio to talk to Gloria De Piero about what needed to happen. And you said, we're going to get through this and we're going to solve this. And then a couple of weeks later we had. So I think you might have to take some of the credit for that because I've never seen such a rapid turnaround. Within about about two weeks, we'd, we'd solved it. Um, and on a serious note, just honestly, all the people on this on this call, one of the things that I found hardest about this whole process is that, and you know, I bet Jason would say this as well and Jonathan might, but when you're on the inside, there's stuff that you can't say sometimes. It just wouldn't be in the interest of the club. You know, there are bidders who come in, you learn stuff about them, you either can't say because legally you can't say or they don't, they want their privacy to be protected. And that's been really frustrating because the, like the mental health impact of all of this on the fans, like the levels of anxiety, just not hearing anything for weeks and weeks at a time has been awful. And I just wanted to say thanks to you all for this podcast because I know that it's made a really big difference to people. Just even, you know, some of us coming on sometimes and saying, look, I can't say anything, but I think we're getting somewhere 
has been really helpful to people. So just really want to thank you all for what you've done to get us through it. Oh, thank you, Lisa. And uh, I think you think you need to get to bed now, don't you? Pathetic, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks, everyone. All right. Thanks, see you Lisa. soon. Thank you yeah, very bye. much. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Right, so we're going to turn our attentions away now from the takeover. Obviously, excellent news. But we're going to focus on the man of the moment on Twitter and our uh, <laughs> debut on the podcast, The Doc. I'm going to hand straight over to Barry to get this section going. Uh, so, Barry, over to you. Thank you, Si. Hi, Doc. Hi. We had a bit of banter on Twitter not so long ago when I was talking about pals and athletes foot with you. There's one very serious issue uh, and obviously, you, you know, you've been in the, in the spotlight today with Fabrice Mwamba and what happened on the 17th of March 2013. I've seen some of your interviews. That, I saw one that you did around the time and I've seen one, what you did with Fabrice as well. And I must say they were very, very emotional. I'd just like to say you're an absolute hero. <laughs> well, that's fine. You can carry on repeating that for as long as you like. <laughs> it was... um. I, I keep saying this, and I've, I've said this to Fab as well, is that I don't think it would have mattered where that had happened. In the Premier League, the result would have been the same. It happened to be Fabrice and it happened to be me. But if it had been between Newcastle and Man United, I think the result would have been the same if it had been Liverpool or Southampton. And I think, actually, the praise needs to go to sort of the, the systems that are in place, the training that the physios and the paramedics and the doctors have to do, because everything was in place ready to go as it is at every single game in the Premier League and then that's filtered down into Championship now and League One and League Two and so that's kind of where the credit I mean I'll take all the credit you want but the reality is I think any doctor in that position would have done just as well it wasn't anything that I did in particular. I think you've been a little bit modest because uh, you, you did say that you just you just run onto the pitch without any calling from the referee you, you know you obviously saw how grave the situation was and and, and you just acted and uh, it was that spontaneousness that, that probably saved his life. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, look, honestly, I've never been so scared in my life. Um, you know, I, I was absolutely terrified pretty much the whole way through. You know, Fab's someone I've worked with for, for um, Fab's someone I've worked with for four years. He's a friend. I knew Shauna, his fiance at the time, now his wife. Um, and, you know, it really is quite terrifying doing that in front of 36,000 people and a sort of global TV audience of millions. Um, and it was quite surreal when they started chanting his his name. Um, but also, as I said, once you got there, the training kicks in and you just kind of get on and do the things that you need to do. And, and there were a lot of people around. It's not just me that needs to take credit for what happened. The Spurs doctor, the paramedics, the two cardiologists that were involved. So, yeah, but thanks. You took a little bit of time out of football, didn't you, after, after that? How did you yeah. come to arrive at Wigan Athletic? So I, I after the fab incident and everything else my head was just gone bolt I, I was at Bolton at the time and that was the relegation season and there were a lot of there were a lot of big egos in the dressing room and it became a really quite toxic place to work in a lot of ways and I just fell out of love with it um, and that and so I stopped and do Graham Alexander the right back at Preston North End I'd known him when I'd worked at North End before he was the manager at Fleetwood and their doctor had let them down at the last minute and he said look can you just step in for a few games just while we get ourselves sorted and I went there and um, I just fell in love with the game again because all the players wanted to do was train and play. There was none of the politics, none of the attitude. It was just some guys that wanted to go and play football and some coaches that wanted to go and coach and some physios that wanted to rehab. And I just completely fell in love with it again. And then when there was a, the, the doctor left at Wigan, uh, Andy Proctor and Nick Meese contacted me and said, look, would I like to come over and have a look around? And um, I walked in and I just, I've said this so many times, I felt like I'd just come home. That's what it felt like coming into Wigan. 
Um, Preston, I did when I first started, I didn't really know what I was doing. Bolton was a circus in the Premier League. Fleetwood was fun. And then I got to Wigan and it just felt like I'd come home. That's how we all feel. <laughs> We're all... <laughs> it's a yeah, fantastic, fantastic club. Um, hey, hey, you're absolutely right there. Anybody that didn't start, you know, there's plenty of born and bred Wiganers, but I was an import and you're right. It does feel like you found a home. Something you said there uh, before as well about being noisy on Twitter, and and you were noisy, but I don't know if you realise just how much that has raised the spirit of the supporters. That little, those little bits of random chats about going to away games, going into training, the the banter you're having with not only the players but the coaching staff with your with your tactic inputs and all the rest Sorry, of it. That's, that's not banter. That's not particularly, and I think they appreciate that now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, I, I, I actually went onto Twitter because I'd got a little bit angry at some of the. There'd been a couple of fans that had said that they felt that the team weren't playing with any heart, and this was back in January. And we weren't playing with a lot of skill. We weren't playing with a lot of cohesion. We weren't playing because we, as I said, we were just bits that didn't really fit together. Um, but there was never anything but a hundred percent effort from everybody that stepped onto that pitch and from everyone behind the scenes. And that got me a little bit frustrated. And that's when I went on to Twitter and Paul Kendrick picked that up and, and ran with the story. And then after that, it's just taken off. And I spoke to, I spoke because it's in, in the social media policy says we're not meant to be having any sort of that contact and I spoke to Ash about it and he was actually brilliant about it he said look that rule was there for when the it was a premiership club and there was lots of people who were tweeting about Wigan who worked in Wigan that shouldn't have been and it was all a problem he said but at the moment it feels like there's a disconnect because there's the club and then there's the administration the fans and they're not coming to the ground and they're not seeing their players and it just looked like there was a massive disconnect and it just Ashley's view was that just, you know, be careful about what you say, don't say anything contentious or anything else, but actually that it is helpful. It's, caused, it's a bridge between the, the club and, and the fans. I'm really enjoying it, to be honest. <laughs> On the way back from, from an away day, like, like obviously like Wimbledon or Bristol Rovers, Plymouth, would you agree to the uh, stopping us to chip here? Or a bit of supper, or, or would you be looking after the health a little bit better? <laughs> um, I think that there are times when you need to be very strict about what you're doing, and there are times when, for squad cohesion, we need to release the reins. These are human beings as well, and if you keep if you keep absolutely everything incredibly strict and harsh, then you're not always going to get the result. So nutrition is probably not the best thing, but in terms of cohesion and celebrating a win and and increasing that team unity and that bonding which I talked about having changed from January through to here then it is all important and actually maybe it's that sort of thing that we're now doing those sorts of things that every squad I've ever worked with does that brings that unity together and you're seeing the results of that on the pitch on and off it right, Bill, Could you have a word with my wife then and just no. relay that message to her from me? <laughs> yeah, Good I man management that's what it's called Well, I, I, I look Genuinely yes yeah, I think it is. You know, there are times when you need to be strict and disciplined, and there are also times when you need to allow the players just to enjoy being part of Wigan, understand what it means to be Wigan, have a bit of fun and a bit of enjoyment. And it's just trying to get balance up all of those things together to produce it. Yeah, just a quick question. There's something that I picked up on when you were saying about you came onto Twitter because you think like a lot of us really felt there's an injustice when it said the players weren't trying because I think all of us on here were certainly always pro the players. Um I'm just wondering in terms of the psychology, psychological side of things, um, how that works, you know, day in day. Uh, 
at this level at the moment where we're at, you know, being in administration, is there is there any sort of psychological help that they get or a kind of are you kind of trying to provide that as well? As I, like I said, for the first until until the first half of the season, we were just firefighting. It was literally just trying somehow to get a functioning team of some description on the pitch to fill up the bench places. Um and you know we were losing game after game after game, and it was it was difficult. It was difficult for the players, and there were players that were talking about leaving the club again. And please don't ever blame those players because they have families to they have families to feed, and no one knew if the club was even going to be here. They had not been paid for periods. So I don't ever want anyone to kind of look at those players that left and think anything else. Um, but this is, it was just it was horrendous. It was just horrendous. We were just trying to get through each week. Um, and, and I can't, I've never been in a, a situation as bad as that. And, you know, we do need to remember that 75 people lost their jobs as well. And so, so it's all well and good me talking about how tough things are. But, you know, it was tougher for a lot of other people as well. Much tougher for them than it is for us. But it was a tough period in the season. Then come, come January with all the, the transfers and the players that we've got in, things have felt more settled. And I think you can see that, like I said, from the end of that January transfer window, that what the gaffer and Gregor and the other coaches have done is they're starting to, they've built this vehicle and asked the players to get on board and to be part of. And you can see that they have all willingly got on board and it feels like we're all together going, progressing in the same direction, whereas before we were all pulling in slightly different directions. And that credit needs to go to the gaffer nearly all and some to, to Gregor, but also to an awful lot of people behind the scenes that you don't really hear about, the other coaches, the fitness guys, the physios and stuff, because, you know, the medical department's been shredded. We've been working with one and a half physios instead of four over the academy and things. It's, it, you know, it's been really, really tough. And then no one's been moaning about it. No one's been complaining about it, but it has been, it has been tough. And it's nice to get to this point where you start feeling like we're beginning to turn the corner and we can start seeing the fruits of our work. Because before we were working hard and not getting anywhere. And now it feels like we're working hard and we are getting somewhere. So what would, just on that point, what would, uh, say, what would a club in the Premier League have in terms of its medical team then? So say a Man City, what? what, what oh, what, Man City are amazing. When we played them that game, they bought two buses, one for all their players and one for all their staff. They must have had 30 staff on there. So uh, Man City have a ratio of about one physio for every three or four players. A lot of those players also have their own individual physio that will work as well. Um, personally, I think it's completely crazy. It's completely crazy and over the top and it's unnecessary. Um I once designed what my perfect department would be, and it's actually surprisingly slim. I think every time you bring, if the department gets too big, it gets unwieldy and it doesn't help. But you know, man, when you've got when you've got that much money, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, you know, I think we had I, the best medical department I've worked with was the one under Paul Cook, to be honest. And it, you know, and this is this is in a League One club the first year, and then the two seasons in the Championship, and it was functioning as well as a medical department has ever functioned that I've worked at. So you don't need an awful lot of money. You just need the right personnel and the right and given the right environment and allowed to go and do what you do. Well, uh, I'm just going to finish up with the doc now. And uh, I'm glad to see you change your, your Twitter bio today on the... John Peters is to blame for that, not me. <laughs> it was, it's brilliant. But like I said, that fun engagement, it's, it's been fantastic. We wouldn't have you on here, you know, if there hadn't been that uh, engagement. And it, it's great. It's great to be able to get on a level with the uh, with the club obviously we've we've had players on we had Dan Gardner and Callum Lang on uh, the other week and you know they're a, a great bunch of uh, guys it's a results business at the end of the day you're part and parcel of getting those players um, into a position where they can go out onto the pitch and 
obviously we had a game on Tuesday night down at Wimbledon, half six. Stats, possession-wise, shots, everything like that, we were pretty, pretty even. And it showed in the results, a one-all draw down at the new Plough Lane. Gavin Massey got injured. Uh, could be a massive blow. Does it look like it's going to be a big layoff dock or is it too um, early to say? It's too early to say. We'll, we'll, assess, it. we'll assess him tomorrow. Um, he walked off the pitch rather than needing to be carried off, which is a good sign. But sometimes you need 48 hours to let those injuries sort of settle down to really get a grip of, of where we are with it. Yeah. So hopefully not too long because obviously the team was starting to look quite decent, weren't they, together? Uh, Barry, do you want to take us through the uh, the goals at either end yesterday? I thought both goals were, were uh, a joy to behold. <laughs> Viv put a cracking cross into the far post with uh, Super Dan Gardner, trapped it and laid it back for... Was Jamie Proctor who, who bagged his second goal against us? His first goal, obviously, coming against Wimbledon at home. So uh, he's done the double over him now. And I thought we would actually sneak it 1 0. I thought that was it because they didn't really cause too much trouble. But in fairness to them, a, a fantastic cross and an absolutely superb header uh, made it one apiece. And as soon as that went in, you know, that was it. That was the way the game was going to finish. Bad point, not at all. I'd have taken a point before the game started. So it left me feeling quite uh, quite happy, if I'm being honest, and we're out the bottom four, which is the main thing, and we've got to take over, and we've got the dock in the studio. Could life get any better? <laughs> we kind of, I think the entire squad and, and management did exactly what we probably every fan did, which you came off the back of the Wimbledon game thinking a little bit upset. It'd been such an amazing week, back-to-back wins, the takeover news, and... Being 1-0 up as well just felt a bit frustrating that we hadn't held on for the win and just made it one of the best weeks in football ever. And then actually, as sort of half an hour, an hour passes, you stop and think, actually, 10 days ago, if you'd offered me this, seven points out of nine, one goal conceded in three games, out of the relegation zone and new owners, you'd have you know, absolutely snapped the hand off of that offer. Um, and actually, you know, I'm going to go onto the bus and all the sort of emotion of the game had died away. I think, I think you know, we, we, we felt a point was a reasonable point to pick up and we're pretty happy with how things have worked, to be honest. Did you get straight on the tactics board for Liam and let him know what, <laughs> what he needs to change? Um, <laughs> This, is, this, is, this, this beast is kind of becoming too big for itself. I'm going to get, I get absolutely hammered for it. Um, <laughs> I get, like I said in one of my earlier tweets, I've known nothing about football taxes. 18 years I've spent with these guys who are unbelievably knowledgeable and I've picked up nothing. But <laughs> that doesn't stop me. That doesn't stop me trying to put my two penneth in when Liam doesn't want it. It's great. And like, like I said earlier, on seven points from nine, we'd have taken that three games ago, wouldn't we? Really good return due to the you know fixture list and obviously games being postponed etc. We're back in action again on Saturday, albeit a shorter trip, which you you're probably grateful for, Doc, aren't you? Up to uh, Accrington Stanley. Um, Accrington Stanley, Barry, who's the man in the middle? The man in the middle is James Oldham from Derbyshire. He's refereed us twice this season, according to the stats. Anyway, uh, a one-all draw away at Fleetwood, and the uh, the 5-0 home game to Hull. But on all the stat sides, he was referee for that game, but I don't think it was him at all. I think it was Graham Salisbury, the 58-year-old. Uh, and I've, I've checked the video out today, and he, he looks more like a 58-year-old than a, the 30-year-old. So hopefully it was, it was um, Graham Salisbury and not James Holden. Uh, it's his second season as an EFL referee and he's never refed Aki before. So far this season, his record is 
27 games, 72 yellows. That's including one yellow in the old game with us, which I don't think was in. Three reds, all straight reds, no two yellow cards, and he's awarded nine penalties. That's James Oldham. Previously, uh, as league clubs, we've played them twice. We've won one, drawn none, and lost one. The last time out was on the 12th of December, a 4-3 win at the DW. Their form, it's not sparkling. They've drawn one, won one, and lost three. They sit on 50 points in the league. Doc, I'm going to come to you first, and how do you see the game going and what <laughs> No, this is where I show up how little I know about football, and I'm no, I will sit here and listen to you who know a lot more about it than I do speak. <laughs> oh, well, it, it was worth a try. It was worth a try. Adam, we'll come to you. Uh, so I'm going to come in, and you're absolutely right, Simon, the form at the moment. I don't know how they're getting on. I've not looked at this evening's fixture so far. I don't know if you've got the, the latest score, Simon. Uh, they've lost 2-0 at home to Sunderland. So the form is pretty poor. I've just had a quick look at the form and they are second bottom, I think, or third bottom of the form league. So they're punching above the weight, obviously, this season. They started well. Um, I'm sure the uh, the doc can, allude, uh, can back me up on this, that if you have to play so many games in a certain period of time, look at Carlisle in League 2. They were... Um, they had about seven games in hand and they're only nine points behind. But having to face all those games in a short period of time is never conducive to wins. So my view would be, I think we're going to get... I actually think we're going to get a 2-0 win. Paul? Here's, here's how you do punditry, Doc. Um, yeah, they're, they're a mid-table side, um, so we can beat them. And I'll go with 1-0. There you Straight go. Nice and simple. I, I, uh, I don't know a right lot either. I just... <laughs> Barry? If we recall, when we played them at home, it was quite an exciting game, 4-3. Uh, I hope it's not that exciting, and I'll go with Adam. I'm hoping for a 2-0 away win for us. I don't care who scores the goals, but give us give us the three points, I'll be happy with that. Well, I, you know, I'm hoping for a for a win. Uh, we're more than capable, aren't we? And everything's looking nice and positive. It's been a been a good week. We've just got to keep on this uh, momentum. So thank you to the doc for, for coming on. Keep up the... The excellent work. Um, I, I don't think legend does you justice and a hero <laughs> justice after you know everything that you've done and that you know you'll can you'll continue to do because you've obviously got a day job as well as the the football as well. So thank you for everything. Keep on Twitter. Um, don't let Ash take you off there. So on that note, it's uh, it's a goodbye from me. It's a goodbye from goodbye me. From us. Up the ticks. Yeah, goodbye.